Hi, everybody. Welcome to the WAU Most Awesome Founder podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Dries Vaams, and also today I'm very happy to have Garrett McGowan as my co-host. Today we welcome to the podcast Jeroen Kraaienbrink. Jeroen is a strategy and leadership consultant and is a global top 20 LinkedIn creator with more than 200,000 followers. Jeroen, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Dries, uh, for this wonderful introduction. Yes, yes, uh, uh, yes, what we always do is we, we start actually with the first question and, and just actually give the floor to our guests to do some storytelling on their background, where they're coming from, uh, how mm -hmm. they arrived where they are today. So I would say the floor is yours. Yes, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me skip the first 20 years of my, my life. <laughs> I was born okay. and raised. Uh, after university, I, uh, I basically went for an academic career first. So I did my PhD, became an assistant professor, associate professor, and now we're talking like 15 years ago when I thought, uh, do, I, do I want this as my career or not? Uh, not entirely was my answer. So at that point of time, I was already teaching strategy. I did some research in strategy and thought, okay, why not do some consultant, consulting? Um, so I had the luxury of kind of stepping out with one leg. So I stayed in academia for a couple of years, like part-time. But then decided I'm a strategy consultant. I got my first client. Uh, they paid the bill, so that worked out. Uh, and from then on, I've been, been doing that ever since. Uh, more clients uh, and have kind of gradually reduced my academic work. And I'm doing more um, yeah, related things like, like uh, consulting, mentoring, uh, writing, uh, coaching, uh, Education training, I'm doing that still for um, still after university. So initially, I've worked with a lot with regular students, um, then in executive MBA programs, and since the start of this year, I have my own program uh, in Strategy Inc., where we teach uh, other consultants basically in the method and tools that I've developed for uh, for myself. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, and then you, you, you mentioned LinkedIn. Um, that's actually quite a recent addition. I've been, I've been on LinkedIn for a very long time, um, but only started to figure out how it works for me like 15 months ago. So August okay. last year, uh, I was still at like 5,000 followers. Now I have slightly more. So that, that worked very well once I figured out how that uh, worked for me. And then since... We're also uh, amongst entrepreneurs here, uh, startups, new ventures. It is what drives me. It's, it's as soon as things become repetitive, I, I'd like to move on and do something else. So the core is always the same. It's always strategy related. And even the method and the tools that I've written down in my books, that's what I use in my training, what I use in my consulting, my mentoring. Of course, not exactly according to the book, but, but to quite some extent. So that's very very stable, but for the rest, I try to be as diverse as possible and, and building a portfolio of activities around this. Okay. And, and we definitely will come back to your LinkedIn story because I think that's a, a very fascinating one. But first, maybe to touch upon your, your background story. Yeah? So you mentioned you have been in academia for quite some time and also noticed on your website that, that you really highlight the fact that you have this kind of academic background. 
So I was wondering, why do you see that as a selling point? I could mm -hmm. also imagine that some clients would rather see that as a kind of disadvantage, that there is this kind of uh -huh. uh, prior professor in this mm -hmm. ivory tower, uh, reading a lot of books about strategy, but not necessarily having a lot of experience yeah. with strategy, but you seem to sell it as an advantage. How, yeah. why do you see it as a kind of asset? Yeah, um, indeed, what you, what you say is correct. Um, and that's also how I've seen it a long time and how it appears to some. Like if you are academic, you're theoretical and non-practical, so not useful. That's kind of the, the image in our country. In some other countries, that that's relation is not at all there. If you have a PhD, you must be smart, so you're good. Uh, that really depends on, on, on culture. This is something I've been... Not, I wouldn't say struggling, but, but kind of figuring out how to use it as, a, as an advantage. Because initially I also thought, uh, and initially it probably was correct, because I came right out of university, hadn't worked for any company, and then decided, hey, I'm a consultant. So I had to kind of yeah, fake it until you make it, uh, as, they, as they say. Mm. But gradually it, it has become an advantage. Um, and you see, I think over the past two decades and maybe even even longer, but there's a lot of critique and criticism on consultants that they do like a trick, a quick and dirty work, that it's shallow, that it's not, uh, it does not have enough depth or that it is kind of creating a dependency where the consultant does the job and then creates, let's say a need for the next project. And then there is a dependency on the consultant forever. And my research and my teaching experience, so combined as an, acad uh, as an academic, kind of has a different, um, uh, has, has a kind of a unique flavor to it. So the kind of clients I get and that I attract are the, are the ones that are interested in more than just the advice. They want to learn something. They often have experience with uh, other consultants where they were maybe not so happy because mm -hmm. it was kind of too, too shallow. Um, so it, it attracts a specific audience, um, yeah. But you all, and that's what you need as a uh, as a consultant, as an independent, as a startup. You need a profile for it that it's attractive for a specific customer group. Yeah. Garrett, you also have experience as a strategy consultant, if I remember well. Would you agree with that point of view, or what? What would be for you the kind of added value of a kind of academic experience? I mean, my my consulting experience is a little bit different because I did my master's in international development and then I went on to be a consultant in that space. So I think I, that was the the some of the gravitas I, I needed in order to do that. Um, but maybe I would I would push back to Jeroen with a, a question based on your question, Dries, which is, and, and I think it's relevant to a lot of young people that are coming out of university, master's, PhD programs that are thinking they want to leverage the expertise that they have uh, have gained in you know, their research or whatever their subject. I built my first consulting firm while I was still, I hadn't even finished my master's thesis yet, and I was still wrapping up that program. And like you, I felt like I did a little bit of fake it till you make it and, you know, kind of try to establish a brand when I didn't have a lot of credibility behind me. I would be interested to hear um, how you kind of overcame that hurdle, getting the credibility to, to do this consulting when you really didn't have the client base behind you to, to validate that. 
Yeah, interesting question. And, and it's still something, um, uh, So because I couldn't use clients. So I really had to focus on method and approach because I was a nobody at that time, at least in their, in their eyes and having published in any academic journal didn't count. So it really had to be method first. And that has always been my, my driver and also my strength. And because, because of the research and the teaching I've been doing, I knew that the existing toolbox that you find in the average strategy textbooks is not going to do it. So over time, I had developed my own approach, uh, my own framework, which I call the strategy sketch, uh, as a way to make strategy more tangible and concrete. So that tool, the method, that has been the selling point for a long time. Um, plus, of course, just you as a person, uh, whether they like, whether, whether it's a good personal touch, I think that's extremely important independent of your, um, uh, of your background, uh, like, like what kind of person are you? But that's like in, in the second step, because then you're already on the table, you're already, you're already at the table and talking to them. Um, yeah, but method has been my, um, my core. And the interesting thing connected to this is also um, find a client base that does not know you from uh, your past, from your previous career. So initially, I tried to uh, to do some. Um, I think some, something is going wrong with Herod. <laughs> He's disappearing. Initially, I tried to kind of leverage some of the contacts that I had out of the university because we worked a lot uh, also with, with companies there. That did not work for, uh, very well because they saw me as a as a lecturer, as a professor, as a teacher, uh, as a researcher. So for me, cold acquisition uh, from people with people that I did not know at all and that did not me at all actually work more, work better. Yeah. Now, Jeroen, uh, I saw in your website uh, that, that you do consulting projects, both at corporates, but also at more smaller entrepreneurial companies. And given that I would say our target audience are people mm -hmm. who are like in startups, uh, entrepreneurial companies, I was wondering if you compare these two kinds of clients that you have, what would be typical strategic challenges that entrepreneurial companies have that maybe corporates have less? Do you see kind of specific type of challenges, questions that smaller companies tend to bring on the table? Yeah, um, it's probably that the larger companies have many more questions uh, and have like 100 priorities. Uh, mm -hmm. And the entrepreneur, uh, the startup is, I think, more focused on the product, the service, the value proposition, the uniqueness, the different the differentiators. So when I see the work that I do with smaller companies and especially uh, startups and entrepreneurs, it's much more centered on uh, getting the value proposition right. Uh, and that's not because it is really the core of my, my approach to strategy. For me, strategy is a company's or an organization's unique way of sustainable value creation. So it matches the approach very well. And with larger companies, I also focus on that. But then uh, there are usually a lot of organizational issues, uh, structural, cultural, um, cost, efficiency, all of those kind of topics you see in mature companies, even smaller companies, but mature companies. And with startups, it's much more the, um, yeah, the product, the service, the market, the product market fits. Also finding out yeah, what they're really what their differentiators are. So what are their core competencies? How are they different? How can they leverage those competencies on in their in, in a good product and service? Yeah. Gareth, would you agree with that? The, based on your own experiences? 
I mean, I haven't worked a lot with big companies, but uh, I mean, I think the tools and the methods, the processes and the way of thinking are are quite similar, right? I think where I see an interesting uh, difference perhaps is in who is executing the strategy. If you're in a more mature company, you kind of have people uh, that are qualified for the roles that they're in, ideally, and let's maybe grossly generalize there. But in startups, you know, you often have uh, founder teams and early employees that are learning on the fly, adapting, filling multiple roles, and and maybe there's a, a little bit less of a uh, competencies to actually execute on those strategies. Do you do you notice? Your own, do you see any differences in that regard in terms of the, the yeah, people but, that are actually taking strategy and turning it into action? Yeah, but probably more the other way around. Uh, and, and you may be right, and you are right. Of course, they have more qualified people, they have processes, but I see much more execution problems in larger companies than in with startups because the team is so small, because uh, strategy, it, it's more natural to do something that's not in your in your exact task description, your job description. And that's a problem that I see with a lot of execution in larger firms, that it's no one's job. So you have to first basically create a execution organization. So with processes, with responsibilities, with ways of communication, with ways of measuring progress and managing projects. Uh, and until that is there, nothing really happens. And since with a startup, nothing is there at all, uh, just the people and the energy and, and, and the ideas. It's also sort of more and more natural to switch from, let's say, strategy generation to execution. So there's far less of this split because the team is the team. They are responsible for the formulation part, but also for the execution. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits in a startup in relation to the, the, the main problems that cause so much failure in strategy is the disconnect between strategy formulation and execution. And in large corporates that has been kind of institutionalized and in small companies and startups, that's still much more organic. So uh, I, I almost see the opposite in the sense that it's easier in, in startups because also the, 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 the mentality to adopt new things and, and, and act upon that is, is bigger and it works smoother. Until a certain point, of course, when when we really have to get it into habits, routines, and structures, uh, then we're talking about a different issue. But that's the maturing of a startup that they the problems they suffer anyway. I, yeah, I I totally understand where you're coming from. I, you know, I think of it perhaps as more of the structural issues of the kind mm -hmm. of slow moving tankers of the corporates. And, you know, you have different business units with conflicting objectives. And and sometimes that creates yeah. this stasis, this stasis condition. I, I want to ask you another question. And I, I want to bring it back to its roots because I work with mostly founders. And when I talk about strategy with founders, I think there's some preconceptions that sometimes exist, um, where especially a lot of young entrepreneurs that have been, you know, taught that this kind of lean startup, very iterative hypothesis testing learning process is the core to going from zero to product market fit. And this perception is that, you know, strategy is, is more of a, a linear preconceived process. Can you maybe clarify as, as an expert in this space, mm -hmm. how you 
Is there a differentiation there? Is that a misconception? And if so, how? No, it is there. And I think it, it's lean startup, business modeling, iterative process, as you said, hypothesis testing to so the much more short cycle, agile, adaptive approach. Um, I, I, always, I try to push back a little bit there um, because the whole point of strategy is to create some stability in a very hectic, dynamic, complex, uncertain environment. So if we would turn strategy into something fully adaptive and short cycle, uh, then we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater and we have nothing left and we're basically just executing and, and learning and trial and error. So for me, it's, it's two things. One is um, get the attention from just the product fit, the product market fit and the value proposition because lean startup is mostly also focusing on, on that part. And that's where you can kind of iterate it and you need the market because you need to find out whether your customers uh, like your products and what their needs are and so forth. But the other elements of strategy, so thinking about the long-term partnerships you need to set up, think about the competences you need, you need to build, think about your culture, the structure of your company, the, the cost structure, how you deal with risks. So there's a lot of other elements in a strategy that need to be addressed. Um, so that's where, where I try to help them. Okay, you need, there's more than just these kind of two, three, four points that you are paying attention to, there's seven more. And the other thing is, okay, one does not exclude the other. We can be iterative with, for instance, fine-tuning your value proposition, and at the same time, think about the long-term. And um, for me, the, 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 the mantra is, or the motto is, um, monitor uh, eagerly and, and change reluctantly. And um, I think that part, the change reluctantly, is something that is diff more difficult for them because that's where we want to set out okay, the, the long-term long objectives. Uh, so I think there's not a contradiction there, um, but it's, it's, it's also when, and probably the group that comes to me is, is a biased group because they are already aware that they need something like this. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I try to deal with that. There's always iterations you can make, but as long as you have this long-term orientation, like if what I do now does not bring me into problems like three years from now. Um, so think about this long-term. That's what I always, with uh, when talking to them and working with them, I'm emphasizing. And also, uh, and that's what, what I do with large corporates as well, is treat your, your there is no such a thing as a final strategy or a strategic plan. It's always uh, temporary and you are always wrong. And if you, if you know that, it's, it's about the direction and having this long-term orientations, always look not just to your short-term horizon, but also to like the three-year horizon, maybe even your five and 10-year horizon. And when you keep that in mind, uh, yeah, there's no, no, no real contradiction there. Maybe to further touch upon that, Jeroen, because I noticed that you have written several books and one of the books that you have written has at the title, Unlearning Strategy, the 10 mm -hmm. most persistent strategy myths to forget immediately, which mm -hmm. was, I found <laughs> quite a thought provoking title. Sure. So, and I can imagine that over time, your, your most favorite myth might change. At the moment, what would you say is your most favorite myth that companies should learn as quickly as possible? Uh, the first that comes to mind is the myth that a consultant can give you a strategy. Okay, uh, that's that's a that's a nice point for a strategy consultant. Yeah, and it's actually I have another book called Strategy Consulting, and I use a quote by Henry Mintzberg, and um, um, probably not getting it exactly right, but he says something like every executive that hires a consultant 
to to create a strategy for them should be fired. <laughs> so that's the first yeah. quote, the, the like the the motto of that uh, that book. I think there's a lot of truth in there um, because the idea that someone external can give you an advice is kind of strange because as a consultant, I don't know your business as well as you do. I don't know your industry as well as you do. Of course, there may be some exceptions when you are really a deep expert in a specific industry, you may provide kind of expert-based consulting service, but the average strategy consultant does not have that experience because the whole point why do consultants work is because they can kind of build up generic um, experience and competence in a topic like strategy because they work with different companies. So I never give my clients advice. I work with them. I co-create a strategy with them and on behalf of them. So I'm, I'm kind of a ghostwriter. I use that method for more often where I work with them, um, have them challenge them, ask them all kinds of questions to get their views on the table, get their disagreements, their conflicts, their, their thoughts, their opinions, uh, everything on the table through a systematic process. And then I, uh, I kind of process that and write down. So, and that's also where my research background as a qualitative researcher comes in quite handy because roughly what I do is very much like inductive research, grounded theory-based research, I, I gather as many different uh, uh, data points, uh, often subjective and qualitative, and try to uh, create the, the most fitting story from that data. Mm. So I don't give, give advice, so I cannot give, of course I hand over the, the drafts uh, strategy one once I've created, it's theirs. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought up some interesting points. And I always thought of myself when I was doing consulting work more of a facilitator than a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my mentors once kind of told me this adage, and he said that good strategy and good decisions happen at the intersection of facts and values. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you, you want good data, but you also need to you need to understand the values of the people that are, are driving this strategy. And, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's a big organization or a small organization, I think there's, there are, there are these values that are, are laden specifically in goals and objectives. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, so when you think about like, you know, goal setting objectives, whether it's working with a big company or a smaller company that really in some ways are the framework of analysis mm -hmm. for, for all strategies, how do you deal with, you know, stakeholders, stakeholders with different, different perspectives, different decisions? Do you find that you spend a lot of your, your work kind of working towards consensus in organizations um, in kind of yeah, determining no. what the direction should be? Yeah, not consensus. It's more consent because consensus is endless and will never happen. Uh, or the consensus is so meaningless that, that it's not very helpful. Uh, yeah, my, my approach is for, for this very reason um, and, and for other reasons also because strategy is very much a social process where people have to kind of get involved and, and get a sense of hey, where we're going together, have a say in that. But I have a very participative approach. So with what I always do is with all the internal stakeholders or try to get a good representation of the uh, of the company, which is basically a research skill, a sampling, theoretical sampling, 
create a diverse kind of representative sample of the company in terms of uh, functions, experience, attitude, and so on. And with that group, co-create a strategy. So those are the internal stakeholders. Sometimes you also have external stakeholders to, that need to be involved. And that's kind of the secondary, the second tier involvement that I do, for instance, with some clients, with uh, a board of supervisors or any other group, specific group of external stakeholders uh, to also have them um, have a say in the, in the process. But I really, I do see it as a, as a two tier approach with a core team responsible where I co-create the strategy with them. And that's whether it's a startup or, or a large company, that's basically the same. And the second tier of specific groups of people or specific individuals involving a specific phase in the, uh, in the process. Now, a criticism that I sometimes hear is when I talk with people privately uh, that, that are working in companies and have faced a kind of strategy consulting exercise is that they tell me, look, the strategy consultants were not hired to create a strategy or to give advice or to facilitate. They were actually simply there to justify and legitimize mm -hmm. the decision that was already taken. Mm -hmm. But the top management just needed a kind of external scapegoat to justify yeah. the decision. How do you avoid that you become the scapegoat? I tell in the very first meeting with a potential client that this is not what I'm going to do. And if this is what they look for, find someone else. Yeah. And also that uh, the outcome may be something they don't like and that I will challenge their views as well. Mm. Yeah, because I think yeah. in, 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 my, in my book, Strategy Consulting, I think I call this pseudo-consulting. Pseudo it's not real yeah. consulting. It's yeah. just, it, it can be very lucrative, but I think it's almost non-ethical to do so. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Good. Then uh, I saw that you wrote another book with a very <laughs> provocative title called No More Bananas, <laughs> which was an interesting yeah. title. Uh, and it was actually about giving practical advice for keeping a cool head in the collective lunacy. Yeah. Now this really triggered my uh, kind of attention. Can you explain, can you yeah. give us a kind of executive summary of that book? What we <laughs> learned from that? Yeah, um, maybe first a little bit of history because it's it's kind of more it's out of the scope of what I do normally. Yeah, uh, it's the only single book that's not about strategy, and it's it's a self help book. And literally, uh, I wrote, basically wrote it uh, for myself. Okay. Um, to to keep my cool, my head cool in the collective madness, uh, as the subtitle goes, um, because there's so much bullshit around us and so much. And it's on social media, but also in, in, in real life. And so many people that just repeat what others are saying, and that kind of makes it true. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I also see a lot of people around me kind of being stressed out, being uncertain, um, feeling a lot of anxiety because the big world, the big wide world out there. And there is this tendency to say that, um, yeah, we live in a much more uncertain, complex, volatile world than ever before. And... If the, the more we repeat that, the more it becomes truth and the more it creates stress and the more we kind of get into this kind of vicious cycle where uh, if everyone else is saying it, it must be true. So I'm going to say it as well. And we all feel feel lost. Mm. Uh, I a couple of years ago, I find myself kind of be being drawn into that more than I liked mm. and started sort of collecting some of the wisdom that I had received from a lot of different sources and put that 
in in a structure, which is, I think, what many writers do is they write a book to figure out something themselves. It's very true for me, for my books, for my articles, for my posts. It's my way to to understand the world around me. So, and when I was doing that, I thought, okay, let's let's um, yeah, let's just write it down and put and create a book. In a, in a very in a nutshell, it's in nine steps. Uh, how do you kind of create more silence in your brain and feel more uh, stick closer to yourself? There is a very clear link to um, the way I work with clients um, when doing strategy because it's it's very common to start outside, do an external analysis, do a five forces framework and a D step and or a pastel and so on, uh, and then ask the question: What should we do in order to to fit in? Uh, I start the opposite. I start internally. What are the resources and competences? What are the partnerships? What can we do? How can we leverage our strength through our products? And then, of course, you don't ignore the outside world. But you start internally. Um, also, I rely much more on gut feel, intuition, judgment than so-called hard data. I don't care about mm -hmm. quantitative data. In all my reports with clients, there is hardly a number. It's much okay. more qualitative story, collective story. So there's lots of parallels between the No More Bananas book and the way I work, but it's for a very different reason and a very different audience. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty serious book. Uh, <laughs> and, and for a lot, much larger group, because I see whether it's students, whether it's entrepreneurs, no. whether it, everyone kind of repeats this, uh, everything is getting more complex and uncertain. So we are, I don't know, is it true? Some, in some aspects, yes, but compared to the, the history of mankind, we're still living in a pretty, pretty in, in most countries that, that probably watch this, you know, this podcast, we're in a pretty stable condition. So let's not uh, exaggerate the uncertainty and the complexity. You, you, you brought up a word that's one of my favorite ones to kind of poke and prod at when we get onto it in, in a podcast. And it's stories and storytelling. Um, I think it's one of the most important skills that entrepreneurs and, and leaders can have. But as you dig deeper into that, you know, who owns the story and who owns the narrative, you know, can play a big role and, and trickle into decision making and processes and, and strategies. Mm -hmm. You know, you've worked, you know, you, you brought up the example of, or I think Dries brought up the example of, you know, leaders that try to hire consultants to validate what they have already predetermined that they want mm -hmm. to do. There's a case where there's a very top-down story where it's owned from the top. I did a lot of work at the grassroots, you know, on, in development projects where it, it was, I would say, bottom-up, right? Mm -hmm. you, were, you were trying to create strategies that were serving the bottom of the pyramid rather than the top of the pyramid. Have you worked in both of those settings? And can you speak a little bit, if so, can you speak a little bit to the differences in your approach when you're trying to maybe, you know, in, in one case, you're trying to serve shareholders or, or decision makers at the top versus something that, uh, you know, the, the aim is to have a more collective, collectivist impact? Um, maybe not, not really, because I never make the split and I have not worked, uh, let's say with, uh, the bottom of the pyramid, if you say so, um, my, my approach is not top down, it's not bottom up, but it's really kind of more horizontal. And that's again, the participative approach where I try to make sure that we have people in the room 
representing uh, uh, worker level, representing board level, representing team level, so that you bring them together and create one story. And I think that's, again, another similar cause of so much failure in strategy is the split between people, the split in an organization, the split in time, the split in who owns and creates the story. So we need to create the story together. And of course, not literally, like if you have 1,000 people in your company, it's not literally, literally with everyone, but at least everyone is kind of represented and you involve them in some part of the program process and actually do something with their feedback. So I, I see it as my task. That's, um, I also see, I always see my client is the organization. It's not the CEO, it's not the board, it's not the top, it's not anyone else, it's the organization as a whole. Uh, and then you kind of yeah, dissolve the, uh, the, the split by involving the different parts of the company in the, uh, in the process. And, and, and how is it? Go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up question on this because from my experiences, that was always a, a, a challenge. You know, we would start with a bit of a, a stakeholder analysis, trying to identify who needs to participate in the core team, who needs to mm -hmm. participate in the, the outer layers of the process. And if you if you missed substantive stakeholder groups, it could have a pretty serious impact on on the overall process. Do you have any kind of uh, suggestions or tips and tricks of how you get the identify the right stakeholders to participate and and then be able to get them to the table effectively. Maybe already at my comments because it's it's perfectly aligned with that. I think sometimes I, I agree stories are important, but sometimes we ignore that stories might reflect existing power structures. Yeah? So the stories that are highlighted might mm -hmm. actually be the stories that the majority kind of tells to strengthen their power structure. And so you might have a risk that if you focus too much on the existing stories, you're mainly just reaffirming the power structures and indeed ignore some kind of subgroups that might feel dissatisfied and, and that they might actually be the kind of cause for problems that are out there. So, so yeah, how do you deal with that indeed? Yeah, um, I think the answer here is again methods, um, um, and and kind of insist on I'm I'm in the lead in the process. Uh, so it, the way I I work with with companies is is in a pretty in, in the meanwhile pretty standardized approach because I know that that's the way it works and what it what it does it creates an opportunity for everyone to give their judgment and of course if there are very strong power structures. Where, for instance, no one dares to disagree with the with the CEO, um, or yeah, people are are primarily um, there to defend their own position. Um, yeah, I, I assume that, uh, and and kind of if if you know if you assume that that's what people can yeah, can bring to the table, it's kind of you know, he, hear through what they say. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something, the interesting thing is I've never experienced it as a real problem. Okay. And I don't know whether that's the bias because of the kind of clients I get because of who I am and, and how I, uh, how they find me and that they, they know what kind of person and how I work. Um, or I think that's part of it. So it's part of it. It's part of it is a selection bias, but I think mm. it's also very much in the methods, um, very transparent, very open, safe atmosphere 
very much focused on uh, what, what people think, getting their ideas, their, their, their opinions on the table. Um, so and I, pay, I pay a lot of attention to creating this safe atmosphere for people to speak out. And sometimes you see people that are very actively not saying something. You know, these kind of, they, you see they want to say something, but they don't because, I don't know, for whatever reason. Then you take out, you, you talk to them separately and think, hey, I saw you want to say something, uh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, you get that information. So I always see myself as um as a very neutral person and also as um almost as a conduit. And I think I've also in, in the strategy uh, consulting little book uh, written that like one of the roles of a consultant is also this kind of intermediate is you hear people, you're the safe person to tell things to and the way it gets into the strategy is not with your name added there, but on behalf of me as part of the bigger story. So I'm kind of the yeah, the neutral mediator um, by hearing uh, yeah, and, and using all their inputs and then packaging that in a way that they it's completely not recognizable like from, from whom it is. And I know theoretically there's these power structures, there's cultural differences, uh, there's the top that. I'm just, yeah, maybe I've been lucky or again, the selection bias or it's the approach, but I've never so far experienced it as a problem. Okay. Yeah. Now, as mentioned at the beginning, I also briefly want to talk about your LinkedIn presence. So as mentioned before, you, you have an impressive amount of followers. Uh, when I look at your posts, they always get a huge amount of traction. And at the same time, and I, and I really appreciate that, you're not the guy who... And is prominently present yourself. It's not that you make selfies or silly dance moves or that you use this kind of typical influence, influencer language, how to get rich with these five strategy steps. These are not the, the kind of tricks you use. I would say it's, it's very no. professional how you do it. And still, you seem to be able to be very successful in that respect. So... Can you give us a bit kind of the magical <laughs> tip that you're applying yeah. here? The, 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 the shortest answer is to read, read my, my post from three days ago. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because I, I gave my 10, 10 rule recipe for, uh, for LinkedIn success. Okay. Um, but that's it. But because I, I thought this 200,000 followers would be a good, uh, a good occasion to, uh, to share what I do. The interesting thing is that um, I think I do what what you're supposed to do on LinkedIn, and and that works. And many people find that surprising. But I think if you are authentic, you want to help people, you want to share useful content, and you want to you're willing to do that consistently and uh, you're sort of diligently every every week, and have a, a kind of a kind helping attitude then it works. And mm. so that's interesting. And of course, there's a little bit of um, taking the algorithms into account, but don't, I think the main thing is don't care about that. If, if you're doing it for those reasons, if you're doing it for the followers, if you're doing it for the likes and so on, it's for the wrong reasons. If you're there, mm. if you have a lot to say, if you have a lot to share uh, that is useful for other people and you're seriously trying to help them, then then it works. At least that's what I do. So yeah. based on my 20 years of experience in all kinds of different roles in strategy, I have so much to share 
And um, I like that's maybe another uh, another one. You need to like this doing this because it, otherwise, if you don't like it, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of time. Uh, for me, it's very rewarding uh, because, as I also said, for me, it's a way to clarify my own uh, thinking. So I use post writing to yeah, develop my own to, to my own learning. So it's it's kind of do do what what you're supposed to do on social media. Yeah. And because you're saying it takes time, can you maybe briefly describe what kind of what, what do you need to do to write an average post that you post? Yeah, I think one one is you need a, you need a pipeline of ideas. Initially, I thought that would be a, a, an issue, but I've now like for 15 months I've written three three a week. No, so that's like 200 or so, um, and I still have I have more left than I started with. So the, the list grows. Um, and that, that's something that takes not much active time, but attention. So whenever I, I see a post, I read something, uh, I still do some, for instance, uh, supervision of master students uh, in their report. Sometimes I see an interesting figure, an interesting table. So scan the world, uh, always have this radar, like, hey, is there a, is there a post in there? Uh, when copy it, uh, put it in my uh, in my in my list, and so that's part of the work. But that doesn't really cost specific time. Um, then, of course, the actual writing. Um, typically, I would say in my case, it it'll be like half an hour for for a post from scratch to to publish. Um, I have someone create the the, the visuals for me. Okay. Um, so uh, my uh, Julia from Montfort, I mentioned her a couple of times, in uh, also in my the say the recent post on how how to be successful on LinkedIn. Uh, so she's based on on the picture that I include or based on the description that I gave. She she creates the visuals for me. In the meanwhile, it is a recognizable style, so people see when uh, that it's that it's from me. Um, so that's her time, but that takes some time, of course. And then also the engagement, um, which okay. if I would completely engage with everyone, uh, I would have to stop doing <laughs> other things. But I commit to, so I publish three three times a week, um, at least these, these let's say the normal posts, I publish them three on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 5 p.m. Uh, European time. Okay. And then I commit like the first... 60 to 90 minutes that I respond to comments uh, and also try to get serious um, to respond seriously because the interesting thing is sometimes people write comments that are just as long as the post itself. So I have, I think over the, over time, gotten an audience that's also an interesting audience and not mm. just for the, because they, they want to learn and they're also smart people. If you look at the, their executives, their professors, lots of PhDs, so a lot of smart people with a lot of insight and, and knowledge. So, yeah, I think that's also why you get sometimes very interesting discussions in the comments that I'm sometimes not even aware of because if, if they happen a few days after I posted, I cannot, yeah. it's just too much time to, to take all of that into account. So it is a significant um, amount of time every week, yeah. a couple of hours um, that, I, that I spend on this. You don't... I, I work with a lot of startups that are, especially B2B startups that are increasingly, you know, looking to li LinkedIn as a channel for customer acquisition and for growth of their business. You know, you mentioned 
you know, these tips for being successful on LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. That success can mean a number of different things. One, it's, you know, like maybe in your case where it's really trying to share the learnings that you have and, and grow an audience. And, and for mm -hmm. others, it's something a little deeper down the funnel, trying to qualify yeah, and, yeah. and convert. Me as well. Me as well. Do, you, do you see it as a successful lead gen tool yep. for your business and for others as well? Yeah. And and how would you differentiate the process in, in yeah. using it that way? Yes. And this is also like, if you, if you go to the post on the 10, the, the, the 10 rules, the first one is know what success means to you. And for me, indeed, it's exposure as reaching a large audience and getting business. So the beginning of the funnel and maybe the end of the funnel, uh, until like, like one and a half year ago, I tried to use LinkedIn, uh, the way it's supposed to be used for uh, lead generation, like you have sales navigator, you can create lists and targets and, and target them. I did all of that. I'm terrible at it. I hate it. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, I got my occasional client, but it was yeah, really not my approach. And it has never been also outside LinkedIn, this targeted marketing and sales approach. I'm just terrible at it. Um, so for me, it's it's... I think a quite uncommon way of using LinkedIn, but it were, it, it's currently my only um, way to get new business. And it works, works pretty well, actually. So for me, it's more the, uh, okay, I, I tell the world, as, I share everything I know as much as I can. Uh, people see who I am. Um, as you already said, Dries, you, through the post, you, you read, you also find out the kind of person I am and, and what I know and, and how I try to be helpful. So it's a good filter. So the people that get to me already know me quite well. Um, so everyone that is, would not have become a client is not interested and I'm not on their radar. Uh, so I get lots of lots of requests like, can we, yeah, I need a mentor, we need some consulting. Uh, also lots of collaboration requests that I cannot all, uh, all address. Um, but I think it is because, again, I'm doing what you're supposed to do. I'm showing, not, not showing off, but I'm showing my expertise by trying to be helpful, by being, being helpful for others. And they recognize that. It's a pretty great achievement when you have a professional services business and you're get it, you've been able to flip the script to almost all inbound. And I see the people that do that really effectively, they establish themselves as thought leaders. Clearly you're and you're a, you're a thought yeah. leader in this space, you know, kind of looking at your bio and all the things that you've done. Obviously LinkedIn is a, a new channel. You've, you've written multiple books. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's a great, a great kind of mechanism as well for thought leadership and acquisition. Are there any other channels and tools that you use to, to kind of drive business for yourself? Um, the, the, the book, um, for me did not, that has not worked as I think as an acquisition, but as a credibility thing, as soon as you have a book, you exist. That's kind of your, your, your serious <laughs> because you have a book <laughs> that way it ha it has really added to my, my credibility. And the interesting thing is that was a self-published book. So everyone can, of course, okay. you can publish a book tomorrow if you like, uh, that that's a short-term solution in the end it, it matters what's in there and whether it, it has substance but that's how the books worked uh, adding to the credibility for a long time my um, main um, lead generation and the main source of clients was my executive mba teaching mm. so and the interesting thing that but it's a similar kind of approach because i teach them they have my book i've taught them like for seven half days in a couple of weeks. So, and they practice with the approach. So they, I try to teach them how I do this. 
and then they figure out like okay that's nice but can you can you do it with us so that has been my main um until two years ago that has been my main source of um, of new leads today it's really um uh, yeah, just just linkedin basically and I also saw that you have done a lot of contributions in Forbes. Has that been productive in terms of lead generation or? No, the same like books for credibility. Yes. Um, and yeah, LinkedIn is really next to live teaching. Uh, LinkedIn is for me, the only, the only two things that have worked. Yeah. I was also triggered by the words I was saying it's important to be authentic, but can you maybe explain a bit more how you make sure that you stay authentic on LinkedIn? Because there, there is a lot of yeah. temptation, I would say, to go into this more kind of influencer mode to maybe sometimes become a bit too personal. Yeah. Uh, how do you kind of... Maybe that is me being authentic. I think you're very disciplined in that. Which yeah, part of it is being authentic because I'm, I'm not the, let's say, the chit-chat person I, and I don't care about people's uh, what they've eaten and I, I don't follow don't follow these people I'm not on Facebook uh, so I'm, I'm not interested in their their, their personal story on that side so mm. in that sense I'm very much a content driven person so yeah. I really I like to learn I like to share I like content I like visuals modules uh, sharing all of that so for me a large part is being authentic mm -hmm. um, because why would you? Why would you share that? Uh, I think it's mainly mainly asking for for yeah, the, the compensating for for the attention that you missed. <laughs> and, and of course, I have that as well. Because why else would you like would you like so many followers and be be visible? It's of course it's also uh, kind of rewarding psychologically to to know that uh, there is an audience for what you're uh, you're saying. But I, I find it very easy and then maybe one of the things that i needed to learn and it's also about authenticity is how and what to write and this is something where my academic background has not really helped because okay. there you're pretty much forced into a format and a structure and this is how to write articles and even if you in my during my phd um program you basically learn like hey take an article that you like uh kind of copy the structure and and put in your content and then you're can likely to be successful. Mm. And what I've had, that's also, I had to unlearn that and had to learn writing in my own style. And you can see that also, if you look at my books, where the strategy handbook, which was my first book is still maybe not exactly how I would write a book today. But if you mm. look at the one hour strategy, which is my most recent book, it's a much more informal, personal um, book which was much more fun to write, much easier to write, much quicker to write. And the same I have in my posts. Um, I write them like in one take uh, based on, on what, what, you know, what comes up. And I think this is part of the, the authenticity and what people see is, okay, this is, it's not a kind of polished story that has gone through like 15 editorial uh, rounds, but it's a fresh and, and kind of simple, simple perspective. So that, that's also in the writing, also try to be, yeah, speak out who you are, like, like write as you, uh, as you are and the style you, you want to be. And again, this is the, 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 the bigger theme in the No More Bananas in my strategy approach. Find out who you are, um, what you're good at, what's your style, what's your strength, and 
dare um, have the guts to rely on that and and yeah act or interact with the world from that and not what you try what yeah. they expect from you or what you're supposed to do yeah it's exactly the same like you said before you start from your internal strengths and not yeah. too much thinking about what does the external environment expect yeah. from me of course you will take it into account but you want to start from your own internal strengths yeah. and then try to kind of create your competitive advantage from that perspective yeah, yeah. yeah very much you know there there's one other piece about that that's interesting you were just talking about how to write and Andres was talking about authenticity, but and I kind of want to bring those two together and ask you mm -hmm. about what to write, because I think you know if you're putting out a ton of content, hundreds of posts in a year, it's it's probably pretty easy to to drift a little bit away from your core yeah. competency to interesting topics. I mean, right now everybody, whether they know anything about it or not, seems to be posting about AI. They right? are. That's yeah. the hot topic of the day, right? Um, do you really try to maintain a focus and, and stay in your lane on strategy or do you pick up current topics and events and uh, try yeah. to mold that in there as well? Yeah, it's, it's rule two in my post. <laughs> pick your swimming lane. And this is something I learned from Forbes because there you have to, because I'm a Forbes contributor, which means like there's a theme, it's, it's strategy leadership or leadership strategy, uh, and you can't write about other topics. It's still a very broad lane. Um, and this is what I, if you look at my post, it's also, it's not a narrow lane, uh, strategy leadership. So it, it's a pretty broad lane in a sense, but it's also recognizable. And I think that's very important because that's like a business. If you are trying to serve 15 different types of customers with 20 different types of product, no one recognizes you and for what you are, or as a, as an artist, as a singer, you need to have a kind of consistent portfolio of the things you do, because otherwise people get completely confused. Um, yeah, so that, that's what I, why I stay away from, from AI. I, I typically stay away from all kinds of time-sensitive topics, specific trends, also because I don't know much about it. Um, what do I know about AI? Nothing. Uh, so I, I might write, I'm probably going to write some post, be exactly because we find so much on AI that that would be the theme. Like, okay, what's the what's the purpose of AI in, in strategy, perhaps? Mm, gotcha. But not as a uh, that will be an, an exception. So one, two, perhaps in the coming year, but not more. Gotcha. Okay, Jeroen, actually our time is running out. So we always have as a kind of final question. Uh, we always want to know kind of the podcast you're listening to, books that you're reading that you want to kind of recommend to our audience. Do you have any specific suggestions for books, podcasts, movies Ooh. that our audience should watch? Ooh, that's a difficult. I'm much more a sender than a receiver. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm more, I'm, I'm always on sending and then because I, I've read, I'm, I'm currently I'm, I'm much more in a phase where I'm I've read so much I've listened so much I've I've, I've seen so much I'm in a uh, processing and sending and sharing mode so nothing uh, probably nothing from the last two two three years that is worthwhile while mentioning no but at the same time oh, you were saying for your LinkedIn post and yeah. you're keeping track of so so yeah what are the what are the kind of inputs there that you have to kind of keep track. Yeah, I think that's, that's other people like me. Uh, um, there's others, and that's also I've learned um, the way I, I, I post. I've learned, for instance, from <clears throat> from Monta Peterson, 
Um, he's, 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 a, he's a friend of mine. I know him now quite well. Um, I've, I've learned from, for instance, David McLean. These are people that have kind of a similar approach that I have or the other way around. I have uh, learned my approach by looking at what they are doing. I was also talking to Monty and then learning how they are doing this and then made it my own. So what I do is kind of I have a couple of people like these two and some others that get into my feed on, on LinkedIn and yeah. I follow them. And that kind of is for me also the source of um, yeah, new information. Okay. Yeah. Clear. Okay, Jeroen, then I would say thanks a lot for sharing these insights. Uh, I think our audience will also really like to hear these kind of tips on how to kind of get some additional traction on LinkedIn. Sure. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Uh, and yeah, I hope that our audience also enjoyed this episode. And please stay tuned for the next one in two weeks. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.